Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Robert M. Price, the Bible geek. The word geek denotes an obsessed hobbyist, and I'm happy to accept that definition. I find the Bible absorbingly fascinating. I do not regard it as an authoritative or inspired revelation from God. I used to, but ironically, it was the avid study of the Bible that led me to give up my religious devotion to it. I had to decide between my desire to understand the Bible and the religious faith that created my interest in it to begin with. So now I love the Bible as the classicist loves the Iliad and the Odyssey. In my view, there's nothing more pious than trying to understand the text for its own sake. Whether you're a believer or a skeptic, I'm inviting you to join me as we try to make sense of a sometimes puzzling book. Well, first question, I I have an unusual list of them here, by the way. I don't know uh, where I got this now. It's been a while. I don't have the uh, name of the questioner. I think all of them are from the same person, but whoever you are, thanks for them. The first one says, tell us about Bruno Bauer. Well, one thing we got to get straight right off the bat, uh, Bauer in this case is spelled B-A-U-E-R. Now I point that out so you won't confuse him with uh, his illustrious predecessor, Ferdinand Christian Bauer, F.C. Bauer, because that one is spelled B-A-U-R. And if you want to really get confused, there's a guy writing in the 1930s, also a great, great uh, church history scholar, uh, Walter Bauer. And that one, like Bruno, is spelled uh, B-A-U-E-R. So what the heck, anyway. Call me a stickler, a fanatic, uh, spelling Nazi, whatever. Uh, what about Bruno Bauer? Well, he was uh, a disciple of Hegel, not that it made a whole lot of difference to his uh, theories as far as I know, but uh, he was, um, oh, maybe the first modern mythicist. Uh, he believed, uh, he expounded this in a book called uh, Christ and the Caesars, and in it he said that uh, Christianity really began as a kind of Romanized Hellenistic Judaism, and uh, he, and specifically, he pointed to, I think it was Seneca, might have been Cicero, I always get these guys mixed up, but I think it was Seneca, who advised his readers to pick somebody to um, symbolize your conscience, 
That is, whenever you're thinking of doing something that's questionable, uh, you should ask, ah, gee, you know, what would Abe Lincoln think if he saw me do this? Or what would Hannibal say? Um, Albert Schweitzer, who wouldn't be a bad conscience uh, himself, uh, used to do this. He would, uh, once he, when he was working on uh, building his uh, hospital in uh, then French Equatorial Africa, it was quite a task. And he'd think, geez, can I take much more of this? And he said, well, would Hannibal uh, have given up in his uh, attempt to cross the Alps to invade Rome? No, he wouldn't have. So I'm not going to either. Well, it didn't matter who you picked as long as they were a good paragon of righteousness. And uh, you knew that it was just like, uh, in in modern terms, if you've ever heard somebody say, what would Jesus do? Well, yeah, that, that would be a classic example of this. Uh, what would he think? Would, if he suddenly saw me doing what I'm thinking of doing, would he say, oh, Boy, what a disappointment, etc. I I don't think I'm going to do it. Now, you didn't actually think, as modern pietists do, that Jesus was there watching you with the stink eye. No, it was simply a mind game and a pretty wholesome one. He said that's what Mark, whoever he was, did when he created the character of Jesus. Uh, he, it was just like, what would Jesus do? And uh, he wrote the gospel to set forth of this character, because you really would need to know something about the character, right, to think of him as a uh, as a paragon and uh, a counselor and so forth. So that's what, um, what uh, Jesus originally was. Not that uh, Seneca was saying that uh, you were supposed to believe the person was on your shoulder like the little angel in the cartoons. Uh, no, uh, it was simply a kind of a thought experiment kind of thing. But um, Bauer said eventually it started to get taken literally, and uh, you have something kind of like, I don't know if you've ever seen this, but a little booklet by uh, Robert Boyd Munger that InterVarsity Press published decades ago called My Heart, Christ's home, and um, in which this uh, guy becomes a born-again Christian and Jesus is living in his heart. And the whole thing is a little allegory of uh, if your heart was actually the house you lived in and you would welcome Jesus in. Kind of like the odd couple, I guess. Uh, which one was Felix? Which one was Oscar? I don't know. But nonetheless, um, you would, uh, like, if, if you've decided you were too busy uh, and your schedule was too heavy for the coming day and you uh, said you saw Jesus by the fireplace waiting for you uh, to share your morning devotional uh, and you said Gee, sorry Jesus I, I gotta run okay uh, it, it, and so that it's like admittedly in this case a mind game just like what uh, what uh Bauer said Mark intended, but of course, uh, for most readers of InterVarsity Press booklets, they're pietists and they think, well, something like that really is going on. I guess it doesn't make much uh, difference, really. The allegory works pretty well. But he, but Bruno Bauer said that's where uh, Jesus came from.
he was a kind of personified conscience. And then eventually, you know, he uh, takes on... uh, When did it happen, by the way, that people have thought that this mental Jesus was actually talking to them? Like, he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me I am his own. And the joy we share as we tarry there, no other has ever known. Sorry about that. But that's the kind of drippy pietism that uh, developed. Uh, you, you were, have a little talk with Jesus, uh, it really. And Boy, did you actually hear the voice of Jesus? Well, I don't think most people that say they have a relationship with Jesus even mean that. They're really kind of saying it as uh, an allegory, but they kind of, with a different part of their brain, imagine that it really is true, though that gets you into all kinds of absurdities, right? Uh, Gee, I, I'm having my little tete-a-tete with Jesus, but how many Christians are there in the world? Something like a billion? You know, how does Jesus communicate with all of those people at the same time? It's like, how can Santa Claus get down all those chimneys in a single night, right? It begins to get uh, absurd, but, you know, religious devotion is willing to chalk it up to a miracle and what the heck. Um Bauer was also extremely skeptical about any New Testament narrative and any New Testament authorship claim. Uh, He was the first uh, to uh, say that, you know, the Apostle Paul, his name is on all those letters. He didn't write a one of them. Uh, Well, Schleiermacher had started that ball rolling by saying uh, that uh, uh, Paul didn't write the so-called First Timothy, but but Schleiermacher figured he did write the other ones, and so on. But but Bauer, now he was writing right after F.C. Bauer, who said that he didn't think Paul wrote every one of them, but rather only the Hauptbriefe, the principal epistles, and those were um, First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, and Romans, let's say chapters 1 through first half of 14. Those were authentic Pauline epistles. The rest of them were not. And he had very good arguments, in my opinion, as to why one ought to think that. Um, Other people began, you know, basically doing the old, what would Paul say uh, if if somebody asked him this? Uh, But it was there, it was the view of Paulinists, not Paul. Well, uh, Bruno Bauer, is, who was a contemporary of F.C. Bauer, he said, you're not going far enough if you apply the same sort of arguments from linguistics and so on. Uh, you'll find that uh, Paul did not write any of the letters attributed to him. They weren't all even written by the same guy. Just Paulinists uh, debating as if they each was the real Paul. Well, the real Paul, please stand up. And then you know, three or four guys do. What are you going to do? Anyway, um, so he he thought that they were all second century works. And this is the beginning, uh, you might say, of the Dutch radical school of criticism. Uh, W.C. Van Manen, Samuel Neighbor, A.D. Lohman, uh, and so on. Uh, though they didn't approach it quite the same way. They had different reasons for, for saying, yeah, they're, they're not really by Paul. Uh, But it was Bauer that got that going. And when it came to the Gospels, well, 
you could kind of guess, right? If he didn't even believe there had been a historical Jesus, uh, there was no way he'd think that one gospel was more authentic than another. And uh, the great value of his work, which you wouldn't really know, uh, except for the iceberg tip of it, if you've ever read Schweitzer's book, The Quest of the Historical Jesus, where he discusses Bruno Bauer in some detail, uh, but still, you know, there's loads more. Um, he had very incisive and insightful uh, observations about uh, the Gospels and how they can't be harmonized together and how there's all kinds of problems with them if you take them as sober history. And I remember in, in one of them that Schweitzer talks about, he's talking about the central section of the Gospel of Luke, also called the Tra narrative uh, where Jesus is going from Galilee to um, to Jerusalem and it takes him apparently weeks to get there well it wasn't that far the whole thing's an artificial construction just to give Jesus a chance to say a whole bunch of things to a whole bunch of people um, and uh, and so Bauer is saying now look according to Matthew, this was his travel route to Jerusalem. But according to Mark, it was this. And according to Luke, it was that. He says, uh, for the one who would follow in his master's footsteps, I wish him bon voyage. Uh, and uh, pretty funny, scathing stuff. Uh, why is it difficult to find uh, Bauer's work, well, if you read German, I guess it's uh, not that tough, though the books are not readily available, but by far most of uh, Bruno Bauer has never been translated. And of course, the reason for that is they figure, well, religious books, uh, technical religious books, how, what kind of an audience is there for that? And and if you're smashing the views of the most of the people that would be interested in such books, <laughs> nobody's going to want to buy that. Well, somebody is translating uh, some of Bauer's works on the Gospels, even as we speak, so I'm hoping before I shuffle off this mortal coil to actually be able to read. Uh, I, I can read German, but it, it's a little laborious. Uh, so anyway, a, a fascinating character. He was a big influence on Karl Marx, and this is why the um, official Soviet view of Jesus, and there was one, was that Jesus never existed. The USSR was officially mythicist. Uh, and uh, it's, it's fascinating, the whole thing, but Bruno Bauer is well worth uh, looking into. Okay, next question. Do you know whether anyone has made a serious, well-researched argument to change the BCE CE dating scheme to something more centered in the Western Hellenistic Enlightenment eras. I I have to suspect somebody has, but it, it uh, if they did, it's never caught on. Uh, to tell you the truth, I don't mind the BCE CE thing because it replaces BC and AD. Now, of course, you know what that means, right? BC before Christ. And A.D., Anno Domini, doesn't mean after death, 
right? That'd leave kind of a 30 something year gap in there. But no, AD is uh, from the Latin Anno Domini in the year of our Lord. So before Jesus and since Jesus's birth. This is based on a slightly mistaken calculation by a medieval monk called Dionysius Exiguus, Denny the Short. Uh, and, um, but nonetheless, this is obviously, you want to say chauvinistically Christian, but you can kind of give the people who came up with this a break because, uh, it, it, back in, in that time, civilization, culture, as Europe knew it, was Christian. Jews uh, were a, a little minority, and they just it didn't occur to them to factor them into it. I, I'm not sure why. In fact, what they might have done was just to have adopt, adopted the uh, Jewish calendar, which dates from the... Uh, estimate of when the earth was created, just like Bishop Usher uh, did. We've taken all the lifetime statistics of the biblical characters and figuring out that it had to be something like 4004 B.C. Uh, could have done that. I'm, I'm not sure why nobody did. Of course, that wouldn't have been accurate either, but at least everybody would have agreed and no one would have felt left out. Well, in modern times, though, people began to think, Boy, this is uh, probably kind of offensive to uh, to Jews. Uh, we're we're going to force them to date letters based on the idea that uh, Jesus was their Messiah. Maybe I, I don't know specifically who came up with this, but the idea was instead of saying B.C. before Christ, how about B.C.E. meaning before the Common Era? common? Well, between Judaism and Christianity starts at the same point. The the appearance on the stage of history of Jesus, you know, it's traditionally understood. And so as of that time, you had both Christianity and Judaism. So why don't we call it that? Before the common era. And of course, CE then means the common era. And uh, now that leaves out Islam. But good luck, luck base, basing anything on their calendar, because that starts like in what would be the 7th century uh, CE or AD. It's, uh, the counting starts over. I don't know that anybody has come up with a way of uh, trying to accommodate that. Might as well just, you know, give both dates, uh, one in parenthesis, if you're discussing Islamic history so on. Um, but I don't know if anybody's tried to do a kind of dating Esperanto, you might say. If you happen to know of uh, any such uh, idea, scheme, plan, uh, let me know. Uh, the old Bible geek is always open to learning and even being corrected. Not that it's ever happened. I'm just kidding. Okay, third question. Might the Emmaus story be based on a dream or uh, on the resurrection appearance of Romulus on the Alba Longa? Well, let's take a look at the second part of that question first. Uh, the uh, idea, the, the legend was that uh, Romulus, the first king of Rome, after whom, of course, Rome was named, 
he was in a great battle. And when it was over, and I guess the Romans won, um, nobody could find him. And they thought, oh, my gosh, has he been killed, though? Let's at least try to find the body. Uh, but nobody could find him. Nobody could find a, a scrap of his, uh, his uniform or a piece of his armor. What the heck happened? Well, this might sound suspiciously similar to the story of uh, Elijah, right? He ascended into heaven, but, of course, most of his disciples weren't there to see it, and they were a little skeptical when Elisha told them that Elijah had been uh, taken up, and they said, look, are you sure? Uh, do you mind if we go look? Uh, be my guest. So they, they uh, go all over the countryside, and they come back and say, hey, there's no sign of him. I guess you were right. Yeah, I told you so. Uh, same idea. He, they believe that uh, Romulus had ascended to heaven, and very shortly thereafter, um, a, a senator, forget the name, um, said uh, to his colleagues, you're not going to believe this. You'll never guess who I met on the Alba Longa, this big uh, road in Rome. Uh, it was, uh, I swear, it was King Romulus. And uh, he said that uh, don't call him that anymore. Call him Quirinus because he was now a god and that was his divine name. And he said, tell the Romans to go conquer in my name and uh, magnify the glory of Rome. And then he vanished back into heaven. Now, uh, even, now this is interesting in its own right that um, even at that time, there were people that said, ah, this sounds suspicious to me. And there was a, there was a thought that maybe, uh, there was a conspiracy and people got together and assassinated Romulus. In fact, some of these same stories were told about Julius Caesar, uh, centuries later. Uh, but, uh, the, the point was that this story, maybe this guy, uh, made it up to cover up the fact uh, that, uh, that Romulus was shamefully murdered. But nonetheless, that was the story. The, the, he's on the, the, the senator is on the road going somewhere and holy mackerel, look who it is. Could be. I would not be surprised, but then again, it wasn't an uncommon mytheme. Right. There were, as I've just said, other versions of it with uh, different uh, exalted, recently killed people. Uh, couldn't be. Could the Emmaus story be based on that? Because uh, the two guys, the disciples of Jesus, are on their way home to the little town of Emmaus after the crucifixion. And they're pretty glum and and uh, no doubt also uh, dreading being laughed at when they get back to Emmaus. Hey, you guys, uh, I heard you went down to see your Messiah, Jesus. Yeah, yeah, we were wrong. Uh, enough with the jokes and, and so on. Imagine the people that believed uh, Harold Camping when he's had the specific date for the second coming and they sold everything they owned to buy uh, billboards urging people to repent, and a big zip. Nothing happened. You can imagine the ribbing they took from their unsaved friends. Well, that's, you know, I, I can't help but think that if there was anything to this, that's how we're to picture the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. So they're glumly trudging along, and some guy uh, shows up suddenly and says, hey, mind if I walk with you? No, no. 
down, suit yourself. And what, what's wrong, guys? You, you seem to be very downcast. What, what happened? I says, what, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who doesn't know what's happened in the past few days? What do you mean? Like what? I said, well, we had, uh, been followers of, uh, Jesus, uh, a man mighty in word and deed and, and we, uh, had hoped he was going to be the liberator of Israel, but uh, they they crucified him. Uh, it's been a few days now, and some crazy women in our group claimed that they saw him alive again, but uh, we never did. Oh, what a mess. And, uh, and so Jesus, because that's who it is, right? He's saying, wait a second. You guys think he's not the Messiah you thought he was? Haven't you ever read in the scriptures that the Messiah has to suffer and die before he can enter into his glory? This is supposed to happen. If it hadn't happened, your your hero couldn't have been the Messiah. Uh, and uh, they're discussing this for some hours, and then they get to the these guys home in Emmaus and they, they they say to him look it's getting late uh, why don't you stay with us and uh, have dinner with us oh, oh thanks okay and so as the guest they let him say the blessing over the bread and as he does he he disappears into thin air and at that moment and not before the two guys say can don't you know who that was? Uh, yeah, uh, that was Jesus. Uh, I guess he's not dead. And so they get up, leaving the meal on the table and hot foot it back to Jerusalem to tell the other disciples. But they already know because they've seen Jesus do. It's a great story. Uh, could that be based on a dream? Well, Sure. I mean, people are having vivid dreams of the recently dead. I, I had... Uh, a series of very vivid dreams about my father shortly after he died. And they were so real. I remember thinking, how can this be? My father passed away. I know that, but this is he. There's no way this is somebody else. What happened? I don't know, but the fact is obvious. I mean, there, and you know, I think it was, Oh, was it J.B. Phillips that had a vivid death? Uh, he, he was in bed one night and had a suddenly a vision of C.S. Lewis, who had died recently. Uh, this happens, right? The subconscious is, uh, is comforting you by letting you see a loved one one more time. That could be. But I tend to go with your first instinct that it really is based on um, an ancient tale that survives. And I think the the Romulus one that's that's a pretty good uh, theory. But there's one that is even closer than that uh, that was written up shortly after it supposedly happened, um, engraved into a tablet affixed to the wall of an of the Epidaurus shrine to the healing god Asclepius, who himself uh, had been killed and rose from the dead. He was the son of Apollo, and he was a great healer. And he would appear in dreams to those who sought him out, tell them what to do, and they would be healed. Well, um, this uh, this guy is with his wife and a couple of friends carrying her on a stretcher uh, to Epidaurus. 
to the shrine because she has a, a delayed pregnancy. And uh, she's going to be in big trouble if she doesn't deliver the child pronto. But she can't seem to do it. Maybe Asclepius can can help her out. So they get there and they check her in uh, into her room there in the Asclepium, as they call it. And the idea was you would fall asleep for the night and Asclepius would appear to you in a dream and tell you what to do. And there were loads of these testimonials up all over the place whether factual or fictitious, I leave to you uh, to guess. But uh, she's hoping for a dream that'll get her having that baby. But nothing happens. Well, the next day, she and her husband and their friends uh, take her. They go back on the road, back home, worried. Uh, and uh, suddenly a guy pops up and uh, joins them and said, what, what's the matter? I see you're in distress. And they, they uh, put down the stretcher and they say, well, here's the sad story. Uh, and, and they tell them. Uh, and uh, he then says, says something and, uh, and she is able to deliver, though it turns out it's a healing story because she wasn't pregnant. She, she was infested with tapeworms, but he got rid of them. So uh, it was a a miraculous healing and then he disappears and so they say oh, what do you know Asclepius didn't disappoint us after all I, I have to say that is so much like the Emmaus story I can't help thinking that, that that's what it was based on Luke has added the dialogue but you can pretty easily snip that out and just have a continual narrative and it is so similar to the Asclepius story uh, which was you know, on public display um, uh, for a couple of centuries before the Gospel of Luke was written. So that that's what I think. Uh, here's another one. What do you make of the references to antinatalism in the Bible? Like, that it's good not to have children. Well, of course, that's not the dominant view in the Bible, right? Um they, in fact, before they had any idea of the survival of death in any conscious way, uh, the best you could hope for was just uh, becoming a kind of a ghost uh, roaming the barren uh, streets of Sheol underground uh, and a kind of a big lightless parking garage, just pretty dreary. Uh, and, and others uh, just figured you died, and that was the end of you. The only thing approaching immortality was what they now call uh, the immortality of influence, that you want to have lived in such a way that you'll be well remembered. Uh, and uh, instead of, uh, you know, the old joke where uh, at this uh, funeral, it is real SOB, everybody hated him. He was such a crook and so irascible. And uh, so the time comes when they ask if anybody present has anything good to share about this guy. At first, there's nothing. Nobody says anything. And finally, from the back, uh, this voice pipes up and says, well, his brother was even worse. Um, you like, you don't want to wind up like that, right? You don't want to be a byword. Uh, it, rather, it's like in Genesis where, um, uh, they, where uh, God uh, gives him this, uh, 
blessing, this promise of progeny, even though he's so old, he shouldn't be able to to have kids, he and his wife. He says that by you, all the nations will bless themselves. Um, Due to stuffing Christian theology into the Old Testament, you usually hear that translated as, uh, in you all the nations will be blessed. But in the Hebrew, there's no difference between the uh, uh, the middle and passive voices. So it could mean, in you all the nations will be blessed. Oh boy, good things will happen to, to everybody because of uh, some benefit bequeathed by Abraham. But surely the point is, your good fortune, by miraculously having kids after all, will make your name synonymous with uh, blessing. People will say, may you have as many children as Abraham did. So they will, um, by your name, people will be blessed. Um, so that was it, right? The uh, the immortality of a, of a remembered, a, a name remembered for good. Uh, well, uh, so that shows you how important offspring were. Uh, if you died childless, they'd bring in the leveret marriage law. Oh boy, wait a minute. The, the property's got to remain in the, uh, inheritance line of the poor guy who died. Uh, what's going to happen to it now? Uh, and they said, well, uh, if he had a brother, uh, he's, he ought to go in and try to impregnate the widow. And if it works, the son born of that union will be considered the son of the first husband. Uh, and um, that's why uh, Onan didn't want to do it. He knew that if he did successfully impregnate uh, Tamar, the, the child would not be considered his. There's nothing doing. Uh, well, anyhow, um, very important. Uh, oh, what does it say in one of the Proverbs? Uh, uh, blessed, well, children are a gift from the Lord. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. So not big on antinatalism. Well, there are a couple of places I can think of offhand where you do have what sounds like an antinatalist comment. Uh, one is in Job where he said, uh, let the day I was born perish, you know, strike it off the calendar. And the other one is uh, when Jesus says, the son of man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom he goes. It would be better for that SOB never to have been born at all. I think there's another one too about the millstone and all that. Um, and now what is the point there? Well, it's not making a generalization. It's not saying it would be better to uh, uh, not to have been born yourself. I mean, forget about begetting future generations. I mean, that's really antinatalism, right? You wish you hadn't been born. Um, so is there anything that would correspond to antinatalism? Well, yeah, the Encratite movement. Uh, in the first two or three centuries of the common era, encratism, based on the Greek word enkrateo, self-control, 
uh, implying celibacy. That was really big among Christians of various kinds, including Manichaeans. There were whole villages of Manichaeans and so forth. Uh, in the Acts of Paul, Paul gives a sermon in Iconium where he's saying you, you must renounce sex to, to go to, to heaven when you die. And all of the apocryphal acts of the apostles have that. That's what gets the apostles martyred in those. Uh, women are hearing the apostles preach uh, um, about what George Orwell called the anti-sex league. And, uh, and the husbands and boyfriends of these women get pretty uh, upset, as you can imagine. And so they go to the governor or the king or whatever and say, look, there's this home-wrecking charlatan out there. Uh, you got to do something about this. And he does, and they get imprisoned and eventually martyred. Uh, and uh, so now there, you, you felt like, no, I'm out of the business of supplying further uh, children. The Marcionites felt that way. Uh, they said, look, if we have more kids, that's only going to result in more slaves to the Demiurge. We don't want to do that. Uh, and so they had reasons for saying, let the human race end with us, because they were all apocalyptists. They believed that, look, there's not really going to be any future pretty soon anyhow. That's why they could give away everything they own to the poor. They didn't have any future to plan for, no worldly future. And so that's one place where antinatalism does come into play uh, because eh, there's not really going to be any future. What the heck? Um, and uh, uh, so that's all I can think of. You may have other uh, passages in mind. Well, and finally, uh, this uh, smart person says, is the passage in Revelation 7, sorry, Revelation 11, 7 through 12 about the two witnesses somehow related to the passion and resurrection narratives of the Gospels? Uh, yeah, this is, is fascinating. Uh, let's take a look at that. Um, Revelation... Um, 11, yeah, okay. Um, mm, well, let's, uh, well, let's, let's do a bit more of chapter 11. Then I was given a measuring rod, like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out. For it is given over to the nations, and they will trample over the holy city for forty-two months. And I will grant my two witnesses power to prophesy for one thousand two hundred and sixty days, same amount of time, uh, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands which stand before the Lord of the earth. That's... In, from Zechariah, uh, Joshua the high priest and Zerubbabel the Persian governor, uh, who are two messiahs in, in that book. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, thus he is doomed to be killed. 
that is killed in that way. Uh, they have power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to smite the earth with every plague as often as they desire. And when they have... Um, when they have finished their testimony, the beast that ascends from the bottomless pit will make war upon them and conquer them and kill them, and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is allegorically called, or spiritually called, literally, um, uh, Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three days and a half, men from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents, because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth, because of the plagues they summoned, right? But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up hither. And in the sight of their foes, they went up to heaven in a cloud. And at that, and at that hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Uh, well, there's obviously some, uh, Christian passion narrative stuff going on there, right? Uh, that uh, the fact that um, the uh, the, well, the three and a half days, right? Uh, that's kind of like on the third day or after three days, the different estimates of how long Jesus was in the tomb. That's there. And uh, the reference to uh, this happening in the city where Jesus was crucified, implying Jerusalem, Though, interestingly, it doesn't say so. Uh, and uh, uh, the fact that they, they do die and come back after preaching to uh, the, the people and riling them up considerably. This sounds like a kind of uh, shorthand version of the Passion. But Jesus has been split into three characters, right? Our Lord doesn't say his name even. It doesn't even say anything about his resurrection, right? It jumps over to these other two guys and they're preaching the, uh, their persecution, their um, murder, and their um, ascension into heaven, uh, resurrection and ascension on a cloud, like in the gospel, uh, uh, the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. Who are these guys? Well, in the early church, for some reason, they were generally taken to be um, Enoch and Elijah. Now, why is that? Because it seems pretty obvious uh, the the, uh, the writer had in mind Moses and Elijah, right? As far as we know, Enoch didn't uh, impose plagues on people, but but Moses sure did, right? And um, uh, let's see here, uh, and the 
Elect and Elijah with the fire, right? He's toasting everybody in sight uh, with the fire called down from heaven, which thus, in a sense, comes out of his mouth, right? He he calls for it, and it it appears. Um, So why did they think it was Enoch and Elijah? Well, I'm not quite sure why, but it does make some sense, because the point, whether you think it's Enoch and Elijah or Moses and Elijah— What do these fellows have in common? According to contemporary belief, none of them actually died, even Moses, right? In Deuteronomy, it says that he died, but nobody knows where he's buried. And it says that God or Yahweh buried him. Well, uh, Jews at the time, and I think they were right, said this is a coy way of saying that he didn't die, or maybe he was transfigured and taken up to heaven. And so that's why uh, at the transfiguration story in the Gospels, it's Moses and Elijah who come to speak with Jesus of his coming death. Because these two guys didn't die. They went to heaven, whereas everybody else who died didn't go to heaven yet. Right? That wasn't part of the theology. They're in Sheol sweating it out uh but mo- but if, but in this earlier stage of belief uh if you went to heaven it was because you were exempt from death and and so they figured well Moses and Elijah were still alive with God and they were available to come and speak to Jesus but the same thing you could have said about uh, uh Moses and I mean about Enoch and Elijah so why they picked Moses instead who knows but uh, that the idea in either case is these guys didn't die like everybody else did but eventually at least in revelation they did but then they rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. Uh, and uh, this does seem like an odd thing. Chapter uh, 11 is a good candidate for being an interpolation, like a subsequent add-on to the book. I remember the John the Revelator, whoever he was who wrote this, he was worried that somebody might start adding stuff to to what he had written or subtracting stuff. And so he says, hey, hands off. If anybody tries a stunt like that, their name is going to be omitted from the role of the living, the census role of heaven. Uh, and if anybody adds anything, well, all these plagues of the end times will come looking for him. So keep your meat hooks off it. Well, to me, it looks like somebody did add uh, this, right? Uh, and uh, because now why is that? Well, it has the... Um, uh, a nod to Ezekiel where he is given uh, a, a little scroll and told to eat it. And he says that it's, it's sweet like honey. Um, maybe I'm mixing this up, but, uh, but in Revelation chapter 11, um, the, the seer is given a little scroll and it tastes like honey in his mouth, but it gives him a sour stomach. Uh, a little scroll. I mean, that really looks to me as if somebody is saying, okay, here is a new little revelation I've wedged in here. Uh, and uh, also, it mentions the beast as if you know who he is, 
but he is then uh, introduced uh, in the next chapter, like out of sequence. So something funny is going on there. And by the way, I think someone has omitted something from the book of Revelation. Uh, remember when uh, uh, the, the seer hears seven thunderclaps uh, we know from the Dead Sea Scrolls that there was an art called brontology, uh, thunderology, d- divination by interpreting thunderclaps. And, uh, uh, let's see, um, and so John hears this and, uh, and is made to understand what it means and is about to write it down and an angel says, oh no, 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 seal up what the seven thunders have said. Why? We, we, uh, we're not told any more about them. Uh, well, it seems to me it's because somebody has chopped something they deemed heretical, and I even think I know what it is. I think it was, um, uh, one of the Nag Hammadi texts called Thunder Perfect Mind, which we're told was a, a scripture of the Nicolaitan sect. And of course, you know, from reading the whole book of Revelation that the Nicolaitan Gnostics were targets for John. He denounces them a couple of times. And I have a hunch he's saying, okay, don't read this thing. Fascinating. Um, but uh, but somehow th- these guys are repeating the fate uh, of Jesus in in this prophecy, and that's interesting because you don't have anything about the crucifixion of Jesus anywhere else in the book. You've got the Lamb that was slain, but that has to do with astrological imagery. Jesus is the Lamb who was slain, namely. Aries, the ram, who is always depicted with his head 180 degrees facing backwards because they would, when they would sacrifice a lamb, they would break its neck. And so that is the lamb that was slain. You don't have the same sort of thing uh, in Revelation. So again, it looks like it might be from uh, another source. But uh, anyway, I uh, think I'm going to get going before I start losing my voice. Uh, I'll get back to the regular list of Bible geek questions. I'll know where people are from and be able to do insultingly bad imitations of the accents implied therein. Uh, But for the moment, I think that's about it. Uh, Another Bible geek coming up uh, pretty soon, I think. Uh, By the way, I'm kind of starting a uh, a kind of in-person Bible geek session every couple of weeks in my home. Uh, I uh, don't know. I know there are a couple of Bible geek listeners that live fairly near me in eastern North Carolina. Uh, let me know if you're available and would like to come. You can email me at criticus, that is critic with the U.S. on the end, criticus at AOL.com. So thanks for being with me on another exciting episode of The the Bible Geek. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? 
a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.